Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-DM, Tom Lando. Uh, McGill. Oh, man. Did you get all messed up by the vaccine, McGill? Nah, it just kind of sounded like you had forgotten who you were. Nope. Nope. And I'm doing okay. We're there's a lengthy, there's a pregnant pause before you said your name. We both got part one vaccine. That's the new vaccine, COVID vaccine session one. Yeah, it is episode sixty one, to my understanding, uh, and it is the twentieth of what May. 20th of May, yeah. 2021. It's my dad's birthday. Uh, you didn't even remember your dad's birthday? Uh, well, I remember that was my dad's birthday, but I don't remember the name just now. But he's gone off to the cottage. Got him a zombie video game. That game Days Gone. Oh, very nice. I've been wanting to check that out, actually. He he loves him a good zombie adventure. I hope it's up to snuff. Um, I have a hell of an episode for you. Well, that's good, because I don't actually have that hell of an episode for you. Oh, man. Well, I'm going to make up for it, because I tell you, this, um... So, this is going to be... We just finished off in my storyline, Act 2, uh, Temporary Antennae from Al's Aces, which is when they went to hell, the act they spent in Cania in this second campaign. But now we are beginning Act 3, Points at Infinity, uh, which we'll include in the show notes, um, is yet another album from the Profound Lore Records Bandcamp. Uh, this one is a weird kind of like, it's it's some sort of collaborative effort to my understanding, um, and it is only two tracks, um, which basically means that this is a two-op act. But boy, let me tell you, you know, it, it's it's funny because the same thing happened um, actually the last time that this that the players in the previous campaign went to the Far Realms. So it's sort of a thing is that uh, acts in the Far Realms don't take a long time, which why should they? There's no time at all in the Far Realms. It's nonsense. You never know what you're going to get. It's kind of like the Mornlands. So. Um, I have an exciting, like, like all this to say that the beginning of act three points at infinity operation projective plane in which Al's aces go from Kenya into the far realms in pursuit of the Prairie Hag Carmen, not knowing what to expect. This is where I feel, I, I think I didn't know quite when I would feel like we were really into the the heart of like the games that I had been running on this podcast, basically. You know, like you go through that whole phase of Empox's finest where everything's kind of experimental and less confident, but like now that we're at this point at the beginning of Act Three and Al's Aces, now we're really getting into what I feel is like the meat of what I've been working on for the past years honestly uh as oh, a wow. dm um, finally 
Well, I, I mean, this is we're we're really getting into the heart of it now. Is is what I'm saying. Um, that is exciting. So yeah, we got Operation Projective Plane. I also uh, want to do a quick uh, reference to something that I forgot about back in Hell, just because you know I was doing some DMs notes recently, looking at spells for a uh, 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 an NPC, basically, and. Um, you know, you look through the spells that are given for NPC monsters and whatnot in the book, and, like, often I find you want to mix and match, basically. It's like you see one spell, and it's like, uh, would I use that slot for that spell, or would it be more thematically appropriate to use something else? And uh, based on that, um, I, w- I was looking at a-, a mage that I was designing, and one of the sort of suggested spells in the mage stat block in the monster manual, I think was phantasmal force. And, uh, I'd sort of forgotten about phantasmal force, but phantasmal force, um, was a move that Chessie used as a sort of spellcaster in Kanya, uh, that I had forgotten about. Um, oftentimes when dealing with rebel devils, uh, Chessy would use the spell Phantasmal Force to basically create an illusory, like, high-powered devil. Sometimes she would spring for a a vision, like an effigy of Mephisto himself, basically. But what Phantasmal Force (laughs) is, it, like, puts the idea in your head that something is happening, and you sort of justify it, and you even take psychic damage in accordance with, like, if it attacks you. So, um... Oftentimes they'd be fighting these rebel devils and suddenly they would appear to have a much more powerful devil aiding them. Uh, but in reality, it was just an illusion created by Chessie. So I just wanted to give a little shout out to Phantasmal Force in Hell. Um, but what's really what we're really getting to is the Far Realms, man. And I, I figure... I might as well just like dive right into it since I'm already pretty yeah, much go got all it. started. Um, is there anything you wanted to say about your session just up front beforehand, though? Uh, sure. Uh, I'll give like a little tiny introduction. Uh, I hinted at the beginning. I was like, I don't have anything near that exciting to present today. And that's because uh, session two of my Greyhawk, my spin on the Fate of Istis campaign... I had initially intended for it to be something completely different uh, than what it wound up being. The The adventure that I run in session three is what I in, had intended for session two, but this was one of my, those cases where my players had other plans and uh, they just kind of like went off on their own quest. They, they had their own mission that they undertook and I had to run with it. So uh, it's going to be kind of like a madcap, uh, slightly shorter adventure, just because the stuff in my notes, it doesn't match with what happened, man. I had something else planned entirely. Sometimes you do the mission you had planned, and sometimes your team of cyberpunk characters runs off and raids a root beer warehouse. Yeah, let's go with that. I mean, that's what happened to me. That's the good example for me <laughs> is they decided they were going to raid the Square Root root beer warehouse. Oh, the Square Root. Now I want root beer. Man. 
Square Root, they uh, Pizza Squared got a lockdown on that stuff in Neo Toronto. <laughs> pizza Squared, the Square Root. And uh, you get Pizza Squared, that's Pizza Pizza. And if you pour root beer in a square glass, you just get beer. And there's also uh, a fried chicken franchise called Cathedrals. And uh, <laughs> they're going to have to look into a transgenics lab that's been doing business with cathedrals. cathedrals. That's not bad. That's not bad. Eh, man, cyberpunk game is there's, fun. There's, and there's a, a, let me guess, there's a competitor called Olive Oil or Bluto's. Uh, huh? I mean, I, I, the thing is, I only create the things when I need them, you know? Uh, <laughs> you know, Square Root is the result of needing to stock a vending machine that a character looked at. Genius. Man, that's a good one to, to pull out on the fly. Well, and it's funny because then it was a whole thing where, like, I they were helping, like, a local, local, like, community center. And I said that their vending machine had everything stocked except Square Root. And the, like, person at the desk explained that Pizza Squared has, like, a lockdown on Square Root root beer now, so they can't get it in anymore, which then inspired <laughs> the players to be, like, let's, our next job, let's just raid the Square Root beer root <laughs> warehouse. Square Root root beer <laughs> warehouse. <clears throat> so that's, uh you know, that's, that's, that's my example of a time that, Players just, uh, you know, went and did their own thing, and I had to roll with it. Well, mine will come later. So, as I said, when you go into the Far Realms, you never know what you're going to get. Last time, do you remember what happened last time for the Mpox Finest when they went in after they escaped captivity at the hands of the Nightside Eclipse? Oh, gosh, what was it? Maybe that vaccine really is affecting my brain. I've been making a lot of landscape paintings. I think it made me artistic. But that's that's just a South Park joke, though. I can't. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, so when Mpox Finest went to the Far Realms, they had escaped the arena of the Nightside Eclipse, where they were being made to fight each other, and um, so. Mpox's finest found themselves in a strange void where they were like climbing literal walls of text and uh their heads turned into big giant mouths and Oh that's uh, right it became all psychedelic. Yeah and then they um they met a big bearded god named Zoth the Radiant Anarchy who revealed that he was sort of the uh extra planar one of the sort of extra planar patrons of the Empire cuz technically you know, Mephisto also qualifies uh, under that label. But he laid out in that circumstance the Mpox finest, like the real gravity of the Nightside Eclipse's operation, like the, the sort of havoc that they were wreaking across dimensions and reality itself. And um, so this time, you know, you couldn't remember what happened to the Mpox finest when they went, when they went in. But can you guess, perhaps, you never know what's going to happen next time you go into the Far Realms. What do you think happened for Al's Aces when they went through this portal? 
it was like really mundane. They wound up in suburbia. I mean, that's one way you could have done it. You could have done it like that Treehouse of Horror episode where Homer goes into the 3D world and then at the end he ends up in the real world. But what happened was time travel. Oh. Far Realms based time travel, my man. Um, In an interesting... Went, wait, wait, wait. So they go... Do they go back to... Mpox's finest is this going to be like a like an Avengers uh Infinity War type thing where the, or Endgame where they revisit the greatest hits of the previous campaign? Not really. Um they are going to go further back than that. They are going to witness firsthand some of the like formational history of the Mpox um through this sort of far realms based time travel which deposits them through time in uh, the outer plane of pandemonium as what I called Scrooge ghosts, Um, which is what I like to say when you're the type of time-traveling ghost that people can't see, like, like you can't say stuff and see stuff, but you're seeing stuff, right? Like an observer ghost. And then the thing was... I was doing this. Uh, I was doing this session. It took a little while, like a few weeks. But while I was running it, Game of Thrones, ding dud Scrooge ghosts. Uh, no one really, cre- no one really cares about that show anymore. Um, yeah, uh, Game of Thrones show had Scrooge ghosts, and uh, you know people. Yeah, I forgot all about that. Bran, right? Was the Scrooge ghost? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he goes back in time and he can see stuff, but he can't say stuff to anyone or anything he can just like see the history he's having the history revealed to him and similarly well, except when he except when he fucks up hodor yeah but that was like a weird sort of, that that's where it like reaches its breaking point right so that's just a funny note that game of thrones was doing the same thing i was when i happened to be doing it but i was calling it scrooge ghost and then game of thrones comes up acting like it's fucking prestige tv scrooge <laughs> ghosts my man it's nothing special done christmas carol done it um but as these game of thrones-esque scrooge ghosts similar to game of thrones alzaces are sent back in time to pandemonium to see the origins of the empok in pandemonium basically to sum this up Pandemonium is the first place that the Empok appears in the multiverse, theoretically. Like, it's the first place that Odium shows up and says, there's this threat called the Nightside Eclipse. They're coming, and we need to defend against it. Odium? The infamous Odium? Yeah, the uh, founder of the uh, founder of the Empok. So is, is past Odium going to be featured here? Uh, no, actually, he doesn't appear in this, uh, point. Um, I think the, I guess to summarize the reason for that is basically that Odium is much more of a, you know, he, he's sort of like the mastermind. He's like the M of the agency. 
Um, so he doesn't, he's not in the field that often. And what they are really seeing is sort of like the, you know, the, the real action of like, you know, they're seeing field agents of like the first MPOC defense against the nightside eclipse. And it was in pandemonium and pandemonium in Dungeons and Dragons cosmology is basically just. It's almost like an ant farm kind of a, of endless caverns. Um, but these caverns have a perpetual abyssal wind blowing through them or, or some kind of terrible wind that blows through them that basically drives people mad. Um, and so it's Farts. like... Farts. What's that? Farts. Nah. Basically, it's like, you know, you're... You got a lot of wind in your campaigns, Tom. You're not supposed to, uh, it's, it's very dangerous to wander the caverns of pandemonium, but there's this idea of there are sort of like outposts and like cities and stuff within it that are like these big cities that are sort of, um, connected by the caverns. And so like there are refuges and whatnot. And, um, for this, I actually reached into some of the old Planescape uh lore which is that um in planescape generally each of the outer planes has a faction a planescape faction that has sort of an affinity with that plane or a home base there or comes from that place and in the case of pandemonium it is the bleak cabal who are basically like all the planescape factions are basically like philosophical factions in one way or another and the bleak cabal are basically like existentialist nihilists based on like nietzsche they believe there's there's no meaning uh there's no point looking for meaning everything's um though they are like they have been styled in the setting as a sort of like like they have soup kitchens and sigil and stuff and they like they give alms to people like they 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 take care of people because it's sort of like all we have is each other. Like there's no grand meaning to the universe or anything. So they just like take care of people regardless of, of whatever. Doesn't sound that bleak. Yeah, but their philosophy is like very inherently bleak is like, you know, there's no there's no great plan. Nothing's there's no destiny or anything, whatever. We're just hanging around in the multiverse. Um yeah, that's kind of my philosophy. Yeah. Well, in uh so so in this time jump, they jump back to pandemonium to a time when the bleak cabal uh has a sort of home base in pandemonium that uh I called the Ark of the Bleak Cabal. It is basically like imagine a giant structure made of glass cubes and every glass cube has like a different thing in it. So there are like glass cubes that you like just walk through from door to door. And like, sometimes you go in and there's like, maybe there's mushrooms growing or you go into one and it's like really dark um, or you go into one and it's really bright or you go into one uh, and the one next to you is just completely full of water um, you go into one and like, uh, the ground's all covered in mud and there's like flowers growing out of it. Something like that. It's like basically a sort of, it's like, a uh, 
an arcology of random things. It's just like a collection of, of, of random multiversal uh, subjects. Um, and so this is at the time that the players are sent back to, this is like a bleak cabal um, major like HQ in pandemonium. And uh, it comes under threat because pandemonium becomes the first place that the nightside eclipse tries to invade basically uh, on an extra planar level and so that is where Odium sends the newly formed Empok to go, uh, you know, defend against the Nightside Eclipse for the first time and defend uh, the Bleak Cabal against these invaders, basically. Um, so the players come through the Far Realms portal and uh, there's a lot that they're sort of witnessing at first. Um one thing you'll remember is one of the important locations for the Empok is the Pandemonic Goblin Archives. So that is also a location in Pandemonium, but it's like the idea is that it's a sort of extra planar library where you're supposed to get any information. And so the players are sort of sent back to the origin of that, where the uh, Goblin Archives are a sort of extension or offshoot of something i've talked about on the podcast before that has also played into the lore of the empok which is the idea of the goblin market um which i mostly got from the changeling setting that white wolf has but it's the idea of this sort of like extra dimensional marketplace where you can theoretically get anything for the right price and often the right price is something sort of like the, the big example is like, you know, you could buy the you you could make an arrangement so that um, your enemy has like a terrible like like you could basically have it arranged like, oh, uh, the Tarrasque will attack the plane of, of my greatest enemy or something. But then the price will be like, OK, but then the Tarrasque will also attack your plane at some point. Um, Ooh, something a real like that. monkey's paw situation. They're they're always like that. Basically, that's the whole idea of um, the goblin market. And at this sort of origin point of the Empok, the Alzaces come through the portal as time ghosts into um, Pandemonium, and they find themselves at sort of the goblin market while it is passing through pandemonium. It is sort of like a traveling interdimensional market. Um, but then while they're there, uh, they get to see some things like they, they see um, some of the original MPOC agents meeting up and sort of uh, discussing what they're going to be doing and like sort of arranging what is going to be their like setting up their base that uh, is in the, pandemonic goblin archives as we know later um but then also while they're here in pandemonium and they're at this market and sort of looking around and seeing this sort of like realizing that their time ghosts and everything they then see that then the arc of the bleak cabal gets attacked by a massive undead dragon a dracolich and it's all like messed up and like 
like corrupted and and full of like weird like machinery like it's sort of like a frankenstein dragon sort of thing and this is a nightside eclipse dracolich that they have named tiamat although it is not the famous tiamat it's just like they're trying to spook people and so they send this super messed up undead dragon this dracolich to destroy the Ark of the Bleak Cabal. And so the players are in the goblin market and then they see this dragon come down and just like attack this massive glass structure and start destroying it and attacking the people. And then um, the Nightside Eclipse begin attacking Pandemonium and they realize that like they're in the midst of a Nightside Eclipse attack. But then not only are they witnessing it as time ghosts, but then they are attacked by nightside eclipse time ghosts and they are on the same sort of like time ghost level this is also kind of like game of thrones because i think that the the night king did the same sort of thing with bran is like he could go into bran's visions and hurt him um so basically yeah yeah well i was gonna say yeah like he he was in bran's visions but it always seemed like he was there in the context of the Night King, like Bran would go back and see the White Walkers and then the Night King was there, but he wasn't like chasing Bran down, you know? But I think I like, know. I think I, I never, I, I never really actually got what they were going for with those. I think at one point, like the Night King grabs his arm or something. And when he comes back to reality, he's like got a like cold, like a frostbite on his arm or something. Maybe I'm making that up in my head. Yeah. Um, Anyway, point being, the Nightside Eclipse have sent their own time phantoms back that can interact with the Alzace's time phantoms on the same sort of like time level. So basically, this is like way ahead of time some tenant bullshit, really. Is like we've got we've got time warriors who are in back in time, but they can only affect each other. They cannot be affected by or affect the sort of uh, place around them. Um, and uh, so these agents that the Nightside Eclipse sends to fight the Empok agents that have followed uh, Carmen through the portal. These are a new sort of breed of anti-Empok Nightside Eclipse agent. This is another big development in the Alzaces plotline that's going to be very important. Is that the Empire or that the Nightside Eclipse has formed an anti-Empok initiative called the Autumn Leaves, which is basically they're they're going to have their own special undead Nightside Eclipse agents who are going to go in and directly mess with the Mpox operations. This is just the first time we're seeing it, is they're going back in time and fighting the Mpox in the displaced time. It's a bunch of tenant nonsense, man. Well, except it makes more sense. It makes a little bit more sense. You know, there's magic. It makes stuff. a lot more sense from where I'm sitting. Um. So then, man, then we have... So the players, they they get through this sort of like initial area where they're they're at the goblin market. They see like chaos breaks out. They see the the Dracolich attack and then they get into fight, a fight with some Nightside Eclipse members. And then I think they were trying to follow 
um, some MPOC agents uh, that they were like sort of tailing in like back in time to see where they were going, what they were doing. And they followed those MPOC agents into one of the like pandemonium caverns in which they were, there was an ambush set up by the autumn leaves who were like operating back in time. And this is where one of perhaps the most like calamitous events I have ever had happen in one of my D and D games happened. Um, that's exciting. So they they go into the cavern. They go they go into this tunnel. There's like a tunnel fight with the Nightside Eclipses, like um, time traveling autumn leaves agents. And they go into the tunnel, and like first thing that happens is they unleash. A time basilisk. A basilisk that will freeze you in time. Neat. And it rushes a out. Quant a quantolisk. It rushes out in the tunnel. And Nestle doesn't even have time to react. She gets hit by the time <laughs> basilisk. Doesn't have time. She's immediately starts fading into this place in time as like a almost like a figment she starts like losing her reality instead of petrifying she is like just fading into this time into this like reverse timeline instead of and, and like she's gonna be lost forever basically and it's like well, it's okay, because Arakendor is a cleric, and he's high enough level, he has greater restoration. He can undo petrification and, and time petrification. It's okay. He can save them. But then, they're fighting the time basilisk, and Arakendor, played by my brother, chooses to meet the gaze of the time basilisk. There is a choice you can make when fighting a basilisk. You can choose to either avert your gaze and effectively fight blind and take disadvantage, or you can meet the gaze, try to make the save, and then you attack, and it's not with disadvantage. Oh, wow. And so the penalty here is that he also, if, if he fails his save, he's also going to get stuck in time. Yes. And he fails his save. Ah, no. <laughs> At which point I pointed out, Alex, you are the only person in this party who can cure time petrification or anything <gasps> even like this. Like, Chessie doesn't have curative spells. Um, And what this looked like was what, like... What does it take to cure it? Is it like remove curse? Uh, greater restoration. I think it's fifth level. Oh, okay. But point being that, like, this is basically like an existential total party wipe like basically the one person who can unpetrify these people like time petrify the two out of three players in the party who have been time petrified has now been time petrified the, also the wildest thing about this is that as a storm cleric um Arakendor had an ability which was a reaction where if he took damage, he could basically electrocute the thing that made him take damage. And so the thing that in the end killed the time basilisk was while Arakendor was like fading from the timeline, 
he got bitten by the basilisk and the basilisk got electrocuted to death. So Arakendor oh didn't God. even need to look at it to kill it. So what we end up with here is a moment where basically everybody at the table is like, uh, uh, um, I, so, uh, like, I have no idea what is sort of like they're 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 in a tunnel in the middle of pandemonium back in time two out of three of them are fading from time like chessie is basically going to be lost in pandemonium forever oh my uh, god while her teammates just sort of fade from existence like the player playing chessie is like uh uh what the like like trying to think of something but they think of something. And I am pretty <gasps> pleased. This ends up, again, becoming a major thing that like has huge repercussions across the campaign. But I'm very pleased that we didn't just like, you know, reload the save as it were, like go back to the beginning of the combat and try it again or something. Or like, you know, just try rolling with that weird dark timeline where like Alzace is just disappear in in fucking after escaping from hell um what happened was chessie at this level now had not only blade singing but also access to the spell haste which in combination blade singing increases your speed haste increases your speed chessie could basically reach the speed of like a car basically um using magic uh she she could genuinely reach like insane miles per hour and um so in a panic and this is very in character for chessie chessie is basically like oh god oh god uh what do i do uh oh shit where uh where that where did they go oh no oh god and she just activates haste and um the player very cleverly was like well you can get anything at the goblin market and assuming the goblin market hasn't moved on too far i should be able to basically join the speed force and make it back to the goblin market and then i'll figure out something i'll make some deal with some goblin and it's the goblin market so there is a goblin who happens to be at the goblin market who is particularly looking to profit profit off people who are on like a different sort of spiritual wavelength. Like if a ghost comes to the goblin market, he's like, hey, I got some deals for you. And he's got like the third eye that lets him see like on that sort of spectral wavelength. So Chessie meets this goblin named Dax. Dax has got um one of those sort of uh one of those like conical like rice farming hats, you know? Oh yeah. But uh under it he keeps a third eye on his forehead. It's a glowing third eye that he uses to see beyond uh see beyond what is in front of him and so he can see, you know, say time ghosts and whatnot. Do all he, uh, the all the people working the goblin market have a third eye? No, 
just certain merchants who are looking to profit on that game, like uh, Dax's. And, uh, I like the. I also like the idea that a third eye lets you see in four dimensions. Like two eyes lets you see in three dimensions. Three eyes lets you see in four dimensions. And uh, I think also his uh, his hat is sort of like encrusted with jewels. It's like got little jewels all over it. But um, you know this goblin, he's walking around with his cane and his robe and his mystical hat. He props up his hat and he sees Chessy zoom around all frantically screaming for help and he's like oh, all right what's all this what's all this i can help you what do you what do you need she explains uh her she's a member of an interplanar organization or and her partners were just uh hit by a time basilisk and are as we speak fading from reality and uh that's that's a hell of a that's a hell of a thing. Dax is like, oh, it's, it's gonna cost a lot to deal with that. It's gonna cost a hell of a lot. But you say you're a member of this uh, interplanar organization, the MPOC, huh? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll solve your problem if I can be the MPOC's new quartermaster and armorer. And she was like, yeah, yeah, sure, fine, and like signed whatever. And he's like, also. I will be entitled to the eyes of the one who met the gaze of the time basilisk. And she's like, uh, oh, no. okay. I, I mean, whatever. <laughs> I, 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 I can't say no. And so she signs that agreement. Also, she doesn't have the authority to basically give this guy a job in the MPOC, but he just took it. So whatever. And he says, well, okay. And he basically summons uh Nestle and Ara back out of their time petrification. They're reunited. And then Dax is like, Alright, well I'll uh I'll see you back at the Empoch. And then he just disappears. And uh they're like, So what's that about? And she's like, I made a deal with that guy to get you guys back. And they're like, Okay, what kind of deal did you make? And she's like, We'll we'll find out later. <laughs> Well, I guess we'll find out when we get back. Let's deal with getting back. And so Dax, this is Dax the Goblin becomes the new quartermaster and armor for the Empok. We're not really going to see him until we get back to the Empok. Right now we're still, you know, out of time, as it were. So they get back onto the path trying to track down these Empok agents. Um, they are once again hunted by the autumn leaves uh, who are trying to take them down while they are in the far realms in this sort of like time displacement situation. Um, and then uh, they finally get to the Ark of the Bleak Cabal where basically they end up going to or, or following the MPOC agents to where they are mounting a big sort of counterattack against the Nightside Eclipse at the Ark of the Bleak Cabal to like uh, save prisoners that the Nightside Eclipse have taken to sort of like assimilate into their undead armies and whatnot. Um, basically, there's a courtyard in front of the Ark of the of the Bleak Cabal, and uh, the players go there where there is like a battle happening between the original MPOC agents and uh, the. Nightside Eclipse, who have all these Bleak Cabal prisoners uh, organized in the 
courtyard. Um, but then also, of course, in this battle, the players find themselves fighting Nightside Eclipse sort of backwards time agents at the same time. So it's like there's a battle happening back in time, but then there's a battle happening in the, you know, backwards time timeline as well. Whoa. Okay, wait. So now we are getting sort of into tenant territory, aren't we? It kind of is. It's but but like, you know, there's no interaction between the battle that is happening in the past and the battle that is happening in the sort of like time travel mode. Uh it's just like one is sort of like a background thing for the other and is just sort of like, you know, again, it's just they're witnessing the sort of oldest the the initial empoch history as it were um and so in this context they actually uh get to get like they don't meet them but um they see the uh um like the original empoch agents uh they don't necessarily get to know all of them but uh, they learn about one of the original MPOC agents um, who is sort of like acting as like as a field agent when when they see these agents talking about their plans and stuff. She is kind of like the spokesperson for Odium in the field. And her name is Serpentine and she is a tiefling. Then... There is Therion, who is still an Empok agent. He's the extraplanar officer who is a big bestial demon who's kind of like Beast from X-Men. And so he's with the original Empok. So they see Serpentine and Therion. And then uh, things... Like, they, they're witnessing this battle and things are going crazy. Like, like it's a really intense battle. Uh, Serpentine is actually struck down in combat. At which point... Al Samasath shows up. Al himself what? of the Al's Aces. And he joins, he get he shows up. He's real mad that Serpentine's been taken down. He throws a bomb at the Nightside Eclipse and he charges in and they get to see like their current handler at like the peak of his field agent days when he was like a hero just like them, basically. Um, but then they themselves have to fight the autumn leaves and so they're fighting these autumn leaves um there's a boss fight with a an autumn leaf mage on a wyvern who has a shield guardian and two flesh golems so like big frankenstein like corpse constructs um and uh they fight they they fight the autumn leaves and then they fight this mage and there's a sort of like weird time crossover moment where Al Samasath can see them like they they can actually make contact with Al Samasath. And this is where something else wild that happened in this episode. A lot of stuff happens in this episode that is very memorable. But also my brother as Arakendor created a stable time loop. You may remember that when I introduced Arakendor, part of his background was that he had a mysterious coin with the Empok symbol on it that had led oh. him to seek membership in the Empok. And so that was like how he went from being a Goliath of the mountains to seeking out the Empok and becoming an agent. And so upon meeting Al Samasath and realizing that they can make contact through the time stream, 
Arakendor flicks Alsamasath his coin. And Alsamasath takes it. And then somehow it goes from Alsamasath in the past to Arakendor, who then gives it back to Alsamasath in the past. Oh, man. And that was just oh, something wow. my brother okay. did. So, so like, he... Neat. So he... Wow, he did the I'm my own grandpa thing. Basically. And like completely, I didn't plan this or anything. It's not like I set this up or anything. He just had this moment of like, I flicked the coin to Al Samasath. And it's like... That is that oh, is man. super cool. This is this is what I was saying about Tenet, actually. Is like, you know, I was watching Tenet and I was like, this would be cool if it was a role-playing game. If players were coming up with these things and doing them it would be cool <laughs> but as it is it's just nolan throwing money at a camera like whatever right um but yeah that was you know that that right there is like your your player created tenant moment couldn't have that's seen neat. it coming that's really neat i like that and uh then after taking part of that battle and parting ways with Alsamasath, the Far Realms is going to take their journey a new direction. But that's for next time in Operation Closed Curve. Wow. That was an exciting session. That's really cool. Man, time. I like the time basilisk. That's really neat. The Time Basilisk will go down in history as one of the most devastating encounters I have ever run, bar none. <laughs> I'm glad they found a way out of it. Like, for a second there, I thought you were going to be like, and that's where it all ended. I was very pleased with the sudden reasoning of like, wait, you said we could get anything for a price at the Goblin Market. It's like, yeah, ah. it's like, is it still there? It's like, I don't know. It's like, oh, shit, I'm going to use my I'm going to use all my like haste, my blade singing. I'm going to enter the speed force. I'm going to go back to the goblin market. Yeah. So has it I'm just curious, has it ever happened to you that you had like an event in your game where all the players got wiped out and like that was it? It's never happened to me, but I tried not to let it happen. Um, I, I, well, I don't like to do just like, well, that's it. Um, and in the past I've kind of grappled with like, well, if that can't happen, then what, you know, what are the stakes really? Like if I'm, you know, barring that, but I have learned like if you're going time, into a boss fight you need to have that threat, right? Like if all the players go down, that's got to be an option. It's got to be a possibility anyway. It was also like, you'll remember that the blessing of Poseidon that I gave Alzaces specifically was that the only way they could die is if all of them died because they had that right. sort of like um, regenerative property. And the thing is, so so I used to grapple with this I'd say I was grappling with it up until partway through the campaign I'm running now um, because early on I had a character who died and it felt like I just kept giving them excuses to come back. But 
I have learned that like here here's a good example of where I am at with it now. Uh, technically, when I ran uh, Crimes Against the Faith with you and Jess and Liam, you guys got wiped out at the end. Technically, you guys were killed in the basement of that temple, and that That's could right. have been the end of the session. But that would have been a pretty weak way to end the session. So I made up a sort of like alternative ending where they just take you prisoner and then you still manage, you still get to see what the ending would be. Um, Technically, you know, after the game, I could tell you technically you just died there. Like, but yeah, (laughs) we, we really, we did not do great. You know, at, at some point you have to balance, you know, what are the stakes? Like what, what are the stakes? If I borrow a certain penalty, you have to balance that with like, but, what kind of game is it if I just let it sit at that penalty? Like Dark Souls. Um Yeah, like I think uh other examples like like without getting too far ahead of myself, another good example is uh in the campaign I'm running now where I had that character early on who died, um one of the really satisfying ways I had to sort of reconcile that was um, that player took on a temporary character, but then the way his character had died was he had died in the lair of a necromancer. And so then he, they went back into that necromancer's lair for a rematch with that guy's new temporary character. And they found his, dead character reanimated as a zombie and they had to fight him um and then once they defeated him they got his corpse out and they were able to like restore him and now he gets to play as the same character again um so yeah it's 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 that sort of thing it's like i think that the issue is not that like you shouldn't you shouldn't make uh, excuses. You, you you shouldn't undo these things. The issue is that you should have narratively compelling reasons why the story continues, one way right. or another. Um, right. Uh, a, a character dies, and so the story becomes about bringing that character back, as opposed to a character dies, and then that's it. Yeah. Um, it was a it was a unique situation with my current campaign because in that first act I was doing that sort of Oregon Trail thing that I had mentioned, and so part of the reason they were able to come back a few times early on was because they just had powerful spellcasters traveling with them in their caravan who could basically heal them up. Um, but you know, at some point that felt like a bit too much, and so like at that point with the necro necromancer's lair, it was like. You know, that was, I think, a better way of uh, reconciling it. Neat, man. Cool session. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, I think, yeah, generally my, just, just fine, like, my final thoughts on that question about, like, total party kill and everything is basically, like, I would you know, I would try to come up with something that 
allows me to continue the story even if I, you know, reveal afterwards that like technically that was game over. Cause I, I do want to try and avoid I've done like just sort of like reloads, you know, like, okay, this this session kind of went off the rails. Let's try like like if 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 things go catastrophically wrong in a combat that I feel should load have up been, the save point. Yeah, I've had situations where like, you know, it's after the session, I'm like, hey, did you guys, you guys seem kind of out of it and you weren't really like playing at your top capacity and then you guys got totally wiped. I don't know. Do you feel like, do you feel satisfied with this ending or should we like give it another go basically? Um, That's another thing. But I try to do that less now is what I'm saying. It's like I try to more just have a narrative explanation for the continuation and then say retroactively like but that was sort of like where we had to reload that makes sense i think that's an elegant way of doing it so meanwhile fate of istis everything goes off the rails in session two almost immediately so at the end of the last session, the players had tracked down this uh, ancient magic artifact called the Stormhorn that you can blow into it and summon uh, an air elemental. And it was thought lost to the sands of time, but reappeared in this tiny little settlement way up in the north of, you can never, Earth, Earth, Orth. I don't think we ever settled so on how you actually I looked say it, it up and there is a setting called Earth, but it was the one that Gygax did for game design workshop, I think. And then okay. Orth is the Greyhawk one. Orth. Okay. So Orth. Um one is one is Earth but with the A before the E. And then one yeah. of them is that but with an O instead of an A. Yeah. It's all just Earth. Middle Earth, Orth, Earth, Orth. So uh, the Stormhorn has reappeared in this tiny settlement in the north called Bastro. And the paladin Maeve and her mentor, Sir Lars Rygar, were sent to go and retrieve it before it falls into the wrong hands. And along the way, they met up with Eric a dwarf ranger who wants to be uh, a legendary hero, dreams of being a legendary hero. Um, Stash, who is a kender druid uh, with a scrambled brain. And Hulka, who is a a, a towering barbarian princess uh, who has shirked her duties as princess and was instead working as a bartender in Bastro. My so new, they went. My new Kenny character appears to be Randy the Savage. Randy the Savage, um, and so they went and they retrieved the Stormhorn from an abandoned wizard's tower. And as they were coming back to Bastro, uh, it was nighttime, and because they had uh, they had entrapped the air elemental. The storm that was lingering over Bastro had abated and they could see the night sky. And in the night sky, there was a bright green star, a harbinger of some evil force coming. 
And uh, as they were riding down into Bastro as well, they could see that in the harbor there had appeared a small armada of barbarian raiding ships and then like one giant ship that belonged to... Uh, this is an, an NPC that is actually from Greyhawk, uh, who I looked up. The barbarian lord of the region is called his most grim and terrible might, Relt Seavord, the master of Stone Stonehold. Yeah, you mentioned him last and, time. Yeah, so. and so uh, I what I wanted to do, let me tell you sort of my initial intent for this adventure, is uh, the first half of it, I was going to have them fight their way through many barbarian raiding parties in the town and evoke that scene from the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie where the Black Pearl sails into port and all the pirates start raiding the village trying to find the medallion. Kind of like when the Dracolich Tiamat attacked the Bleak Cabal. Not unlike that. And then the second half was going to be a completely different adventure that wound up being session three. So here's what happened. The players see all these barbarians raiding Bastro, and they wade into the fight immediately. Hulka rages out, Maeve draws her sword, and they and Eric, you know, wanting to be a hero of legend, he grabs his warhammer, and they just, like, dive into the fray. They're fighting their way down city streets. I had, got, I had made some, some battle maps for it, where they were, you know... Can't even just, see like, the barbarians time that are watching sides. them, getting all this information. <laughs> Um, there are barbarians on all sides, and this was one of those cases, especially because the players were low level that we've talked about it before, you know, doing sort of like a horde type of combat where, uh, all these barbarians were also low level. So pretty low AC, easy to hit, not a lot of hit points. Most of them go down in like one or two hits unless the player rolls re really poorly. And, uh, I wanted to do a lot of like dynamic combat. So, you know, they they fight with this barbarian who's smashing a shop window, and then it turns out that he had thrown some kind of incendiary device in it, so they kill him, but then the shop window explodes and they gotta roll their reflex check, or they get set on fire, and in the process, a civilian gets set on fire, so they have to save the civilian and put out the flames, and uh, just sort of move from combat incident like that to combat incident in all of this pandemonium. And I was really hoping that they'd be like, there are too many of these guys. We got to get out of here. But no, what ended up happening is they fought their way down to the harbor front, uh, down the main drag of Bastro. They, uh, they had like, basically down at the harbor front is where the Plot and Hook Tavern is. So they fought their way down to the tavern. And then instead of like taking a left turn and heading out of town, Maeve looks into the harbor and sees Relt Seavord's ship, and Hulka, being a barbarian princess, goes. Uh, Caitlin always uses uh, accents to help her get into character. She finds that if her character has a funny accent, it's easier for her to like get into the character. So Hulka talks like this, and uh, Hulka goes, "Oh yeah, that is Relt Seavord, master of Stonehold. He's barbarian king." And uh, Maeve goes. Well, I'm not letting him get out of this alive. So they find a rowboat and head out 
to Relt Sivor's ship with the intent of assassinating the barbarian king. And at this point, uh, it's a good thing. That's Conan. Let's kill him. Yeah, basically. Um, and it's a it's a really good thing that I was doing I was doing my DMing at this point on a laptop. Um, you know, when I started out, of course, it was just pen and paper. You get your notes together, you grab your source books, and you do your best. And then as the years progressed, I started using a laptop to sort my notes and have multiple source books. Uh, often what I'll do is I'll have a laptop. If I'm doing in-person D&D, I'll have a laptop and then also my iPad. And between those two things, I've got like everything I could possibly need. So I'm DMing on my laptop and the players are like, yeah, let's go take out the barbarian king. And I just go like, oh my God, uh, okay. And so I immediately start looking up and thank goodness, but somebody out there had made an NPC sheet for Relt Seaboard. And of course, he's incredibly high level. He's like an epic level NPC. I was like, these guys are insane. I don't know what they think they're doing. So on the fly, I run an encounter where they have to cross the harbor in this rowboat unnoticed. They are using uh, disguise checks, hide checks. They they get a rowboat and then they put like a tarp, like a tarpaulin over the four of them. And uh, who was it? I can't remember which one. It may have been Stash. But one of the guys, one of the characters who could actually do magic used Mage Hand to push the rowboat through the water instead of them rowing it. So it just looks like sort of a free-floating boat crossing the harbor. Most of the barbarians were already on the shore, so it's not like they were navigating in amongst all these other raiding party boats or anything. So they managed to get up behind the, the poop deck of uh, Relt Seavord's ship. And uh, Eric rolls really well on his knowledge check, and he goes, okay... So it's the back end of the of the ship is usually where the captain's cabin is. So that window right above us is probably Relt Seavord's room. And Stash gets out a length of hempen rope and a grappling hook that she happened to have and manages to grapple onto the edge of the uh, of the window and the the whole party including uh or the whole party this episode could be very total party kill heavy if uh, it went a certain way it really could and so so here was my thinking on it uh as soon as they are like we're gonna take out relt seaward my thinking is like they are gonna die if they actually like face him in full on combat and try to kill him my only thinking like my immediate thinking is just like the thing I would reach for is like, ha ha ha! You you guys have spirit. You're all right. I like your gumption. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, what I decided to do is I was like, okay, um, we're only starting out, so they haven't really gotten totally invested yet. Which means that if I need to kill someone to hammer home to them how serious this is. I can kill the DMPC. I can kill Lars Rygar. And then they'll go like, oh shit, okay. This is actually a real threat and we have to go. And so they climb in and they manage to like nail their move silently checks 
So they come in and uh, Relt Seavord is like at his desk with his back to the windows and he doesn't notice them come in. Maeve stabs him from behind with her sword. Seavord like gets to his feet and he's this huge towering imposing like Northman barbarian and he goes into his barbarian rage immediately combat begins and the first thing he does is he lands this like insane blow against Lars Rygar sends him flying across the cabin into the wall and he's knocked unconscious immediately he's not dead but bam he's way down to zero hit points and bleeding profusely and so and it worked all the players went like oh shit okay this was a mistake so they grab Lars and the rest of that encounter is them just trying to dodge Seavord's attacks. But what happens is he gets in between them and the window. So their retreat, they have to go up on deck of his ship. And, and I was like, okay, here's, here's how we handle this. They go up on deck and there are a bunch of barbarian pirates up there. But then I could bust out the lower level easier to fight barbarian pirates. It wasn't as big of a threat. So I ran more combat where they're fighting on the deck against these hordes of barbarian pirates. Uh, it's all very dramatic. And like Hulka has Lars slung over her shoulder because she's the biggest and the strongest in the bunch. Um, and it's a really like messy knockdown drag out fight. And what they do is they run up on top of the poop deck above Seavord's cabin as he's like barging out commanding people to go and get them and rather than like rappel back down into the boat they all just dive into the water and then they throw uh Lars onto the rowboat they had taken and all sort of swim with it going back to shore as the bi barbarian pirates are like firing arrows at them from the ship and trying to get like the ship turned around so that they can make a pursuit and the players took some damage. Uh, they got pretty seriously wounded, but not so much that any of them died. And they make it back to the shoreline uh, some, somewhat miraculously. And I ran like a few more little combat encounters as they are making their way out of town. Um, and Lars is just like breathing heavily, completely unconscious. And they are sort of left bewildered by like, what do you know, what the hell did we do? What were we thinking was the first thing, but also like, okay, what do we do now? Like, thinking where do we go? Knox. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh oh, um, uh, just embarrassed. I like this campaign could have easily just become a fantasy remake of the verdant apocalypse where Seavor and his raiders are the Omega, the Omega boys. And, uh, they just chase the players across Greyhawk for this. I had considered that what I ended up doing with Seavord and he doesn't really come back into play, but I have it be that he's sort of like the Omega boys, but only in the Northern regions. Like, he's only interested in defending Stonehold. He doesn't want to pursue them any further south. So, uh, it's not quite like the dogged pursuit for having wronged him, but certainly these characters are on Seavord's shit list now. So they get... They sling Lars over the back of a horse, and they start heading out of town. 
and they're like completely weak and weary. And no sooner have they gotten just outside the city limits into a more forested area, then all these bandits jump out of the trees. And this is something I had planned. And uh, the bandits are all sort of doofuses inspired by some of the, uh, the stupider merry men from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So they all jump down. And I, I was going for a Robin Hood thing here. They draw their bows and they go, surrender all your magic items in the name of the unknown archer. I wanted to have the unknown archer be. Uh, have you seen this be a new Robin, Hood uh, Robin Hood video game? Uh, no. And it's like Hood something. It's like a. It's like a PVE PVP thing. It's like so basically, there's two teams of merry men that are composed of like classes. Like uh, Robin Hood is like a, a silent sniper dude, and like Marion is like a like a witch crossbow lady and and uh oh my god uh friar tuck has a burning sensor and stuff anyway <laughs> um, it sounds like the robin hood version of uh of that king arthur movie that was trying to be gritty and real so the the players were beset by bandits demanding all their magical items be surrendered in the name of the unknown archer and hulka was just totally infuriated because she's exhausted after, you know, the the assassination attempt that, that they went through. And she just, like, doesn't know how to handle yet another group desperately trying to take her things or kill her. And so she decides, uh, she has the storm horn. And she goes, I'm going to blow it. Oh, she yeah. blows the storm horn. The air elemental comes out and just wreaks havoc on these bandits, tossing them around, throwing them back into the forest. Uh, and once they are taken care of, Hulka, you know, blows the storm horn again and everybody like beats an even hastier retreat as far away from Bastro as they can. They ride for a few hours with the light of that ominous green star illuminating their way as they head south uh, slowly like the intent being that they will eventually make their way to the free city of Greyhawk but it's like a long ride to get there um hoping that Maeve's sacred order the order of Istus can keep the Stormhorn safe from falling into the wrong hands they decide that they're gonna make camp for the night and this is where the initial hook that I had intended for this session to be about comes into play but instead it was the cliffhanger at the end of the session they make camp for the night and Maeve decides that she'll be on first watch. So, you know, she settles down for evening meditation, communes with her deity, refreshing her spells. And as she's doing so, this vision comes to her and it like shimmers this sort of blurry shape. And then it comes into focus in her mind. And it's a, uh, it's a human wearing, he looks like a merchant and he goes, dear friend, are you a halfling? Would you rather be a Goliath? Completely natural stat enhancement can be yours for only 19 gold pieces, 95 copper pieces, plus teleportation and processing. All natural, 100% guaranteed. Think the number plus 5 to be connected to a live operator. Again, think the number plus 5. This is a limited time offer. Think the number plus 5. And imagine the smell of Petrichor to be removed from our list. I don't like this. <laughs> That's right. So next session 
is going to deal with a plague of magical pop-up ads. Oh, no. (laughs) And that's how how the best laid plans can go so easily off the rails if your players have other ideas. Man. So, do you want to jump right into the tavern? Yeah, let's do it. I got something I've had uh, sitting here for a while, ever since we talked about the barony uh, thing. See, you were talking about, uh, you know, you don't want the game to become too much of, like, the management sim, like, where you're just, you know, you want to play the adventures. You don't want to play a king who sits on its throne. But McGill, according to the Vampire Requiem Chronicler's Guide, you can... It's with the Vampire King's Chronicle style, which reminds me of the Crusader King's 3 mod Princes of Darkness, where you basically do this. You play as a Vampire King. So, you've chosen to tell a story with the Kingpins of Undead Society as main characters. The next step is to figure out what to do with them. The conflicts faced by princes and other potentates are far different from the difficulties of common vampires. While a normal party might face a single strange vampire entering their territory, the leaders of a city wouldn't worry about single strangers entering their domains. Princes would have underlings deal with such things, and only if the strangers pose significant threats would the leaders have to worry. The scale of the group's problems will be citywide at least, if not greater. There are two basic options of scale, in fact, citywide or spanning several cities. If all the characters are... If all of the characters are all powerful vampires in one city, then that is the appropriate scale. If if they are based in various cities, the problems must be broad enough to involve all the characters. So creating problems for a single city's powerful kindred is easy enough. They are naturally congregated into one place, after all. However, a close alliance among characters is more important than than being in close physical proximity. That way, even if some are in Chicago and some in San Diego, what affects one of them affects all of them. With modern telecommunications technology, distance is barely a factor in communication. In fact, a character in California might hear about a mark on a significant ally's reputation or damage to her holdings before the ally did herself. Since most of the actions in this kind of chronicle will be taken by proxy, the actual location of the characters rarely matters. Handling such proxy actions is a delicate process, but with practice, this can turn from a difficulty to be overcome into a handy storytelling tool and familiar plot device. Interesting. So social media factors into this too. Uh, the rich and powerful have many people serving them. In the case of rich and powerful vampires, these servants happen to run along the lines of vampires of lesser status, ghouls, and others bound by blood addiction or uh, conditioning for those who have it available, the vampire power. Make no mistake, moral CEOs and senators would gladly use such methods of ensuring obedience and loyalty if they had them available. Brainwashing on a similar level of conditioning is used in some branches of secret government agencies through entirely mundane means, though side effects of the drugs involved is physically more debilitating than the discipline ability. The motivation to have servants and to bind them to loyalty by any means necessary is completely understandable. The condition of being a vampire merely accentuates and amplifies the motivation. This motivation is fear. 
Humans and vampires alike fear being alone as much as they desire it, and they fear anyone else holding power over them. The best way to ensure that no one else can have power over you is to hold power over everyone else yourself. Hmm. A powerful vampire is one who can tell others of his kind what to do. Uh, uh, if a vampire is a prince uh, and someone makes an enemy of them, that vampire may, him, may find himself exiled on pain of final death. In that case, almost every single other vampire in the city will try to kill or have subordinates of their own try to kill the offending character on sight. That is the kind of power that players in a chronicle like this must learn to wield. And the storyteller, likewise, must learn what conflicts are appropriate for characters with this kind of power and how to tell a story about it. In most chronicles, a rumor about a suspicious happening will prompt the player characters to go check things out themselves. The powerful characters in a chronicle of princes are more likely to send a trusted underling to look into things. This can sometimes seem like a problem. What if the situation to be checked out is dangerous? A situation designed to lure a normal group of characters into a trap they would have to fight their way out of against impossible odds is more likely to simply result in the deaths of a few extras in this sort of chronicle. Enough about the problems, though. On to the technique of action by proxy. Have each player detail the personalities of any important subordinates. Generally, this should include all servants purchased with the retainer merit, of which all the players should probably have several as well as any friends willing to run errands for the character and important subordinate members of organizations with whom the characters have allies or status. Players should be prepared to play these characters for short scenes whenever the story dictates the necessity. This should not happen all the time, of course, since the elders are the main characters in the chronicle, but no one or two scenes per chapter that utilize these secondary characters but one or two scenes per chapter that utilize these secondary characters should be fine. These characters should be used to bring a little bit of action into a chronicle that would otherwise be almost entirely discussion and decision-making from afar. The initial discovery of a dangerous pack of werewolves bent on eliminating vampires from the city's most populous area, which they now consider their territory, would be a good scene to play out, for example. Similarly, the final battle that sees that pack's alpha killed and the rest of its members scattered to the winds would be also satisfying to play. In general, that is the criteria. If it would be satisfying to see a scene played out, and or it would advance the story in an important way to see it done, then do it even if the scene requires using the alternate characters. And this really reminds me of Fiasco, really, in like the style of how yeah. they approach it. Uh, it was actually reminding me, I haven't played this game yet, but I really want to. Uh, there's that game, Yes, Your Grace. Oh, yeah. You heard of that one? Yeah, just certain ways you're describing it about like, doing these sort of these decision-making segments and then breaking it up with action segments really reminds me of what I've read of Yes, Your Grace. I've never played it, though, so I might be totally wrong. So then they also have a good section here that is basically uh, different levels of like conflict that you can face in this kind of chronicle. It's called A King's Burden. To design challenges for princes, the scale may be different, but the idea is the same. There are three principles that hold true for creating conflicts of any kind on any scale. The whole group must be engaged, united, and challenged by any conflict introduced in the story. Each of these goals can be accomplished by targeting certain arenas of the character's interests and influences. Old and powerful vampires have far more to be worried about than younger, weaker ones. A lone vampire has only himself to worry about. 
If he joins a party, the tight-knit group will all be worrying about each other, but this is balanced by their reduced need to worry about themselves because of teamwork. Uh, his sire's sire, who is maneuvering to be the next prince, however, worries about all of the children because they are part of his power structure. The web of power supporting an elder will survive the removal of a few strands if the network is well, con well constructed, but each strand taken individually is weak. Each strand is another vampire or perhaps a ghoul, possibly even a mortal servant or ally. Eldar vampire, elder vampires spend an inordinate amount of effort keeping track of all their vast assets, making sure they grow out of fear that they might not shrink. The beginning of engaging and challenging a group of elder kindred is to snip a few strings of the web. A subordinate starting to send in strange reports is cause for concern when the elders hold counsel. If lesser underlings start disappearing or begin or being attacked, the situation is serious. Trusted close underlings such as personal ghouls or children starting to act strangely or coming under attack is the ultimate slap in the face. A favorite ghoul or child is a vulnerable spot for an elder. Whether the ghouls or children are viewed as useful tools or as close loved ones, even an attack on the elder's own person is likely to arouse less ire than something involving her closest allies. Attacking or subverting vulnerable allies may, makes the elder feel helpless despite her great power. Helplessness and vulnerability are two things that elder vampires cannot tolerate. Once they begin to get flustered, challenging them will be even easier. Anger frenzies can cause damage to vulnerable items in the character's havens, perhaps even causing the characters to harm their own servants. This is actually all coming back to little vampire things I've done previously in the tavern, like talking about anger frenzy, talking about hat right. havens. This all like comes into play now. Um, once the character's attention has been drawn by a problem, the problem must be made challenging in some way. There are many, many ways to do this, despite the immense power the characters wield. Below are some suggestions, but overall take note. The most important thing is to not use any one device too often. This will both annoy the players and reduce the effectiveness and plausibility of the device. So let's go through some <laughs> cool devices on how you can irritate a very powerful character. First is the small problem. Large groups of people, even and especially if those people are vampire, vampires, are unwieldy. A small group of people or an individual can harass large organizations for quite some time before the organization can track them down or surround them for the kill. Thus, a few skilled and well-connected people, whether they be a rival party, a group of vampire hunters, a werewolf pack, or something else entirely, can pose a significant problem. The key is to keep the exact source of the disturbances unclear for some time and make it difficult to track down the perpetrators even after they have been identified. Watch a few cop... Uh, watch a few cop shows to get some ideas on hiding evidence and some spy movies for ways to disguise identity. For the vampire hunter hmm. angle, check out the Hunter Hunter article in this book and the Praying Kind Heart Chronicle template. And there's also a Designing Antagonist article uh, in this book as well for creating these small groups and characters. Then there is the large problem. A city divided along covenant lines, so like the larger sort of philosophical organizations of the vampires, uh, means constant trouble for leaders of both sides. Their, subordinate, their subordinates might get into fights whether encouraged to do so or not. Order in the city is threatened and so is the masquerade, the need to hide the existence of vampires. The organizational conflict might be along other lines as well. 
The conflict might be mortal versus kindred, kindred versus werewolf, or any combination under the sun. Perhaps two sides unrelated to the character's power structures are fighting and the character's subordinates are caught in the middle. In any of these cases, the conflict is a challenge for the characters. A conflict going poorly is definitely a bad thing. Some might see it as an opportunity to advance their agendas, however, in which case the challenge is to pull this off without too much loss. And then there's another uh, reference to another article in the book for uh, war campaigns. Um, then we have the even older problem. The characters are the oldest and most powerful in their own cities, but what happens when something truly ancient and powerful wakes up? What if Dracula or one of their children wakes <laughs> up and starts making waves? Perhaps a particularly powerful werewolf pack surfaces or truly ancient vampire from many thousands of years ago wakes up. A being so powerful it could do almost whatever it wants is the kind of challenge that a group of elders would have to take on themselves, a concept most of them would find more than a little unsettling. Beyond you know, that, we have the insidious problem. Betrayal from within is crippling to any organization. Perhaps an, ab an ambitious subordinate subverts the elder's power structure to ensure his own rise to power, or maybe a rival seduces a trusted ally to her side. Traitors can move freely, can move about freely within the organization they intend to betray, arranging things for quite some time before they reveal themselves by striking. When the strike does come, it is always devastating, not least in the psychological impact. This, by definition, is the attack for which any character is least prepared, the one that comes from someone he or she trusts the most. Ironically, the best rulers are the ones who treat their subordinates with the most trust, and thus these rulers are the ones who are most vulnerable to this sort of problem. We then have the elusive problem. Some problems cannot be conf confronted directly. Often, this results from misdeeds on the part of the player characters. Perhaps the source of their troubles holds a secret that they don't want to come out, and if they move against him, he has made sure it will be released to exactly the people the characters don't want to know about it, even if he is dead. Similarly, the characters might owe him a favor for something big, which he calls in to make them back off. It is also possible that the source of the problem is well-liked by the community, whether it be the undead community or the mortal community, and simply killing them would create too much of a fuss. In extremely unpleasant cases, the source of the problem is someone the characters care about and do not wish to move against for personal reasons. And there are two more problem examples provided. One is their problem. If the characters are tyrannical in their rule, they create their own problems. Those who serve the characters will be angered <laughs> by the mistreatment, and even if they do not rebel, which children and other subservient vampires are quite likely to do, they may act indirectly to set the characters up for their enemies. Be alert for any actions the players take that could make them enemies, because the more enemies a person has, the more likely some of them will put aside their differences and conspire against their common foe. This is 100% how I was playing Vampire the Requiem when I played that crazy <laughs> uh, Las Vegas one where I was basically like William S. Burroughs as a vampire playing as like Tommy Shelby, just constantly pitting people against each other. <laughs> uh, even and ruining your cell phone. Yeah. Even characters who take good and moral actions can make enemies doing so. As they say, no good deed goes unpunished. The evil, corrupt vampires out there will probably not appreciate the meddlings of these do-gooders and will seek to destroy them. Finally, we have your problem. 
Because the scale of this kind of chronicle is different, it may be difficult to figure out when to say yes and when to say no. It is very tempting to overuse many of the same cliche tricks we see overdone in movies. Common security forces are useless, only the main characters ever get anything done, etc. It's also very tempting to just trump the character's powers and influence at every turn. After all, if a player decides to subject all her character's subordinates to blood addiction and conditioning, that would eliminate any story potential in their betraying her, right? Well, yes, but it also limits the number of subordinates she can effectively keep and reduces the creativity and initiative her subjects can show in carrying out her orders. Lack of free will leads to ineffective servants. That is how to balance your yes and your no. Always try to say some of both. Let your players know of the drawbacks and practical concerns that come up for any action that they take. If they didn't want if you didn't want them to do it, make these negatives particularly heavy. Of course, players of characters with common sense merit will automatically get these warnings of these drawbacks ahead of time, as will anybody who specifically tops and stops and takes the time to consider the matter. This should be encouraged. Contemplation and discussion of courses of action is an, is an appropriate mood for this kind of chronicle. You could be the man. vampire Illuminati, man. <laughs> I've played so little vampire. Every time you whip out one of these tavern picks about Vampire the Masquerade, makes me or go like, Requiem. oh man. Or the Requiem. I just go like, I should actually play this more. I think I've only played it like twice in my life. It's a pretty great, pretty great game. It's funny because then in my segment today, I was talking about harvesting from Planescape, but Planescape is very much mm -hmm. influenced by Vampire. Um, because it was that whole 90s vibe of having like clicks for right. your characters. You'd have vampire clans and planescape factions. Everybody has a special haircut. <laughs> so you brought three types of dust. I know at least one is dust of dryness, right? Yeah, it is. How did you guess? That's just I'm familiar with the dust that are still in 5th edition. Well, dust of dryness, I might as well start there. Uh, I decided to dip back. It's been a while since we dipped into the Encyclopedia Magica. So I dipped back into Volume 2, starting with the D section. And uh, I might as well start with dust of dryness, since you guessed it correctly. Oh, yeah. It's, it has been around since first edition. That is uh, the cited source in the Encyclopedia Magica. It is from the DM's Guide, first edition. Hot damn. And the dust of... Dust of dryness. Uh, this special dust has many uses. If a pinch is cast into a cubic yard of water, the liquid is instantly transformed to nothingness. And the dust pinch becomes a marble-sized pellet, floating or resting where it was cast. If the pellet is hurled down, it breaks and releases the same volume of water. When the dust is sprinkled over an area, such as with a wave of the arm, it negates uh, precipitation or cloudburst spells, or else dries up as much as 15 cubic feet of water. The dust affects only water, whether fresh, salt, brackish, or alkaline, not other liquids. If the dust is employed against a water elemental or similar creature, the creature must save versus the spell or be destroyed. Remember, Encyclopedia Magica is second edition, so they save versus spell or be destroyed. A successful save still inflicts 5d6 points of damage upon the water creature, and a pouch of this dust... It's it's pretty uh, pretty intense, and then the pouch of dust 
has 1d6 plus 4 pinches of it. I feel like logically if you inhaled this stuff, you would die. Yeah, you must die, right? Even if uh, all the water in your body doesn't turn to nothingness, you would think that like your lungs would wind up full of It's like those little desiccation pellets. packets that they tell you not to eat. Yeah, silica gel. You ever, uh, <laughs> the dust of dryness is just silica gel. Do you ever see the comic where the guy sees the packet and it says do not eat and he's like you can't tell me what to do and he eats it and then he like wakes up in a bed surrounded by scientists and they're like you did it you beat the simulation (laughs) (laughs) i've been like that has that comic has become a real mainstay in my head of like i see things and i think to myself i bet that's one way out of the simulation like the other day to, to break that rule the other day my my parents stopped by the mailbox on the way back from my vaccination and there was like a Starbucks cup of like half full brackish brown water in it. And I was like, I bet if you drank that, you'd break the simulation. <laughs> I thought you were going to say they stopped at the mailbox and uh, pulled out an envelope that says, do not fold or bend. Mm. <laughs> You're like, I bet if I do it. Suddenly wake up. So, yeah, I'm not remembering the other types of dust, though. Well, there are a lot of types of dust. I'm only doing three, but here's one from the Book of Marvelous Magic. Decoy dust. This dust forms the shape of a snake monster. It appears to attack creatures in the area of effect, but it is merely a decoy and cannot actually damage anyone. It tries to draw attention and then attacks until someone realizes it is harmless. However, if any creature tries to use a bite attack against the snake dust, it automatically hits, and the creature must make a saving throw versus death magic or die in one round, choked by the dust. So if you Ugh. try and bite the decoy dust, you I might tell just you, die from it. I've got a I've got a player right now who's playing a lizard man who, who lizard men get like a a racial bite attack, and like he he, he loves bite put, that dust. He loves biting monsters to like make a point. He's also like he's the guy who won the adamantine chef competition. So. He's also like Aha. a cook, so he's always getting different flavors. He's he's bitten ghosts, he's bitten elementals. Uh, but man, this would be terrifying. You'd bite it, uh, you'd bite a snake, and then die. It's like an item well, made to fucking assassinate Hexakila. Well, I'm just I'm just realizing now, as we talk about this, <laughs> what happens, Tom? What happens when you bite the dust? Ah, you bite the dust. <laughs> That's got to be the intent there. I was That's also why they thinking that maybe if this... you bite the dust, you bite the dust. I was also thinking that maybe this snake monster is just like a wacky waving inflatable tube man or something. Yeah, <laughs> certainly could appear that way. But yeah, you bite the dust and you bite the dust. That's got to be what they were going for. And then uh, the last one that I thought was pretty funny. I mean, there are a lot of different types of dust here. Uh, we, we could spend a whole episode just going through Can't them. Can't believe Dust of but, Dryness uh, was one of them. That was just one of the first ones. No, and but, it's a but I mean, like, uh, I got it, even though we got a multiplicity of options, apparently. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the one I want to talk about is the Dust of Fodder or Fodder. I think dust, I just I remembered another one from 5e is Dust of Sneezing. Oh, that's you know what? I bet that's in here. Let me just uh, scroll down to the S section. 
there are, you know what, I'll, I'll do the dust of fodder and then I'll do uh, dust of sneezing just as a little bonus. Actually says here dust of sneezing and choking. So the dust of fodder uh, is from Dragon Magazine issue 178. This is the solution to many logistical problems. A single pinch of this magical dust added to a gallon of water balloons out into a heap of vegetable fodder sufficient to feed 30 horses or the equivalent for a day. It comes in a small flat box with 3d4 plus 1 pinches. A single dry pinch, if consumed inadvertently, expands to kill the imbiber in a gruesome fashion. Yeah, that's nasty. But that'd be a good item to have uh, on that little Oregon Trail caravan run I was talking about. Yeah, it certainly could be. They were always having to keep track of their their rations for everybody and their food for their draft animals and whatnot. But let's do uh, the dust, the dust of sneezing, the dust of sneezing and choking. So the dust of sneezing and choking is another one that's been around forever. Uh, First appeared in DM's Guide, first edition. This fine dust appears to be either dust of appearance or disappearance. If spread, however, it causes those within a 20-foot radius to fall into fits of sneezing and coughing. Those who fail a saving throw versus poison die immediately. Those who make the saving throw are disabled, choking for 5v4 rounds. That's intense. So uh, the dusts that appear in 5e thus far in the main book are dust of disappearance, dust of dryness, and dust of sneezing and choking. But uh, it's less of a save or die with dust of sneezing or choking in 5e. It's like, you know, you save against suffocating and that has like a certain amount of time based on your constitution. But there are other kinds of dust of sneezing. There are two. So the dust of sneezing from Dragon Magazine issue two. This is a non-fatal variant of the dust of sneezing and choking. Saving throws are at minus two. Sneezing dust causes a coughing spell lasting 2d4 melee rounds. That seems more like the one that's in the 5e, but... Yeah. Anyway. But then also, also, there's the dust of sneezing two from the Book of Marvelous Magic. This dust... This dust uh, causes all victims within its area of effect to make a saving throw versus the spell or start sneezing... Victims cannot attack or cast spells. The effect lasts for one turn or until a remove curse is cast. Just like variations on a theme there. Yeah. Very, uh, Tasha's hideous laughter is a similar thing. Incapacitate with overpowering laughter. Doom, doom, doom. Another one bites the dust. Not me! So, uh, it sounds like we're all done. It was a solid episode. I told all sorts of stories. It was great. What do you think of that? Uh, it's been the 20th of May, <laughs> 2021. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, hit us up on Facebook. You can follow us. It's where I post uh, links to all the updates when they, or all the episodes when they go up. Um, and if you want to see our show notes, check us out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Uh, at some point we'll be filling that out and get all the stuff links to all the stuff we talk about and uh don't steal cause it's haunted level up your characters